Amen. Thank you, AJ. Well, good morning to you. All right. Hey, if you're new, welcome to Citadel Square. My name is Steve, also one of the pastors here. If you got a Bible, why don't you go ahead and grab it and find the book of Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke in your New Testament. That's where we're going to be this morning in Luke chapter 9. Where we've been over the course of these past few weeks is in a mini-series in a study on discipleship. If you were to draw into the inner circle with the disciples around Jesus Christ, this text is incredibly important. It's essentially the epicenter of discipleship. A lot of times when you read through the New Testament, uh, discipleship, you know, a lot of us like our lives in general to go up and to the right. Would you agree? Like the older I get, the better I want to get. Uh, The older I get, the more money I want to have. The older I get, the more maturity I'd like to have. I'd like to be wiser today uh, than I was in my 20s. So now I'm 20 years, 25 years from my 20s. I thought, hopefully I've made some progress, right? Amen? Hopefully you, we, we're making uh, progress throughout the course of our lives. Peter talks about uh, discipleship at the beginning of his epistle and he lists a whole list of character attributes and he says, if these are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, so, discipleship, a lot of times, is thought of in terms of just spiritual progress. We as a church want to talk about making disciples. We want to invest and uh, impart the truth of the scriptures and the knowledge of Jesus Christ into the next generation. We want to help you take your next step with Jesus. A lot of times we use those terms and talk about growing in our maturity, growing in loving Christ with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and be able to love our neighbor as ourself. Well, what we're going to do in, in this text this morning is essentially gather up with Jesus, and you are as close as you could be to the epicenter of this idea. You are within the first community of men who, and women, really, who will commit their lives to making Jesus the center of their lives. So what we need to hear and understand when we come to a text like this is how does Jesus define discipleship? If I were to ask you, are you following Jesus? You might go through a whole list of things in your life right now about relative sin struggles, relative faith victories, uh, relative faithfulness in areas of life that you think you are modeling in obedience and willful submission to Jesus Christ. But wouldn't you agree that it's important, maybe more important, that Jesus defines what it means to be his disciple? Amen? I think that's probably the most significant thing that Jesus could teach us. Where we've been in the book of Luke has been uh, a progressive revelation of Jesus and his person. Even last week, we ended last week talking about uh, Jesus' self-definition. Jesus sharing his own identity with the disciples. And everybody has been asking up to this point in Luke, to kind of the climax of last week, who is this man? Who is this that forgives sins? Who is this that calms the wind and the waves? Who is this? It must be John the Baptist risen from the dead. It must be Elijah. It must be one of the prophets. And last week we saw Jesus draw us close and talk about his identity. Who he is as the Christ and who he is as the Son of Man. But this week what we're going to talk about is really all of what that means for us. What does it mean that Jesus says and agrees to the fact that he is the Christ, God's anointed one? What does it mean that he says, I am the son of man? What does it mean for how we ought to reorder and reorient our lives according to the truth of Jesus' revealed identity? That's all of what you're going to get in Luke 9, 23 to 27. Uh, Let me start with saying there's no person who in this room or who listens to this message who listens to what Jesus says here and says, 
Got it. Everybody's going to struggle with it. Everybody's going to go through seasons of life where they feel the heart-wrenching tension around the ideas that Jesus shares for us here. So if you came and this is your first time at Citadel Square, you are going to be confronted and I hope encouraged by the truth of what Jesus says here. And we're all going to feel bad together. Amen? So how does Jesus define a disciple? And maybe if you've never heard this text before, or you've read through it and kind of just breezed through it, that maybe today is a day for you to recommit your life to being the kind of disciple that Jesus describes for us here. All right? So let's pray together and ask God to be merciful as he reveals his word to us. Father, for these few minutes as we look into your word and as Jesus teaches us about what it means to follow him, we pray for sensitive and receptive hearts. We pray for open minds. We pray for uh, minds that are uh, desiring to know and understand and apply your word in our life. And Father, would you make our ambition to follow Christ, our desire to submit all of our lives to him, the most central and defining feature of our lives? Would today men and women say, I am going to leave all of the things that I think characterize me and I'm going to take up the truth of being a disciple of Jesus Christ as the most singular impacting identity in my entire life? Would we submit to your word, listen to your word, love your word, and would we learn more about who you are through a course of our study here this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Luke 9. 23. Y'all there? Ready to go? Hey, if you don't have a Bible, there should be a Bible in the pew rack in front of you. Grab it, pick it up, find Luke chapter 9 in the New Testament and read along with us. It'll also be on the screen behind us here. Luke 23. We pick up this conversation really mid-breath, mid-sentence, because Jesus has just shared for us what it means for him to be the Son of Man. And he's just shared with these disciples that the Son of Man is not necessarily this glorious figure that is in their mind, but he said the Son of Man is about to suffer, is about to be killed, is about to be rejected, and will eventually be raised. And what we skip, and what Luke skips really that is included in both Matthew and Mark, is Peter's conversation. Peter follows up that confession of Jesus's uh, confession of the Son of Man with a rebuke of Jesus, which Luke doesn't give for us here. But the tone in both Matthew and Mark, as G, as I'm sorry, as Peter responds to Jesus, Peter hears the coming rejection, betrayal, and crucifixion of Jesus, and he goes, "Lord, hey, this will never be." And Jesus, if you know that passage, responds back to Peter and says, "Satan, get behind me." For you don't have your mind set on the things of God, but on the things of man. So as a way of illustration, I want to let you know that what Jesus is about to share for us in light of his coming crucifixion and coming rejection has a way of confronting humans and causing us to stiffen. It just, it caught, who wants to suffer this week? Does any, I mean, did anybody go, man, Thursday is going to be suffering day for me? Nobody puts that on their calendar. So all of what Jesus is going to give you and share for you here, I want you to be aware of the feeling that you should, you should have in your chest because Peter shares that feeling with you. He goes, I don't know if this is a good plan, Jesus. I don't really like it. Okay, so with that 
sort of mental picture of what's happening in the conversation, watch what Jesus says here in verse 23. He says to all, now Mark tells us that he calls the crowd to him. After this conversation that was really in secret about his identity, Mark tells us that he opens up this conversation to the crowd. Luke doesn't tell us that, but we get a sense that as Jesus now begins to speak about what it means to be a disciple, he's going to winnow the crowd. Because the crowd has been really undiscerning regarding Jesus. They've been interested in all of the miracles that Jesus has done. The disciples have just experienced the feeding of the 5,000. You have massive appeal when it comes to Jesus in general. And now Jesus is going to start to lay out the curriculum. What does it mean if you want to follow me? A whole bunch of people have been following Jesus up to this point. Thousands and thousands of people. But now Jesus is going to define the followership curriculum. And you'll notice that Jesus opens it up to everybody. It doesn't matter what your background is, it doesn't matter how rich or poor, doesn't matter how educated or uneducated, how successful or of a failure you are, that Jesus opens the opportunity for discipleship with him to everyone. Amen? There is no person that Jesus does not invite into relationship of discipleship with him. We've seen it all throughout Luke. Everybody's trying to figure out why Jesus spends time with the prostitutes and with the Bible teachers. Why does Jesus spend time with the Old Testament scribes and the Pharisees and with the paralyzed and with the sick? Jesus is continually opening his arms to anyone who wants to follow him. So he begins this conversation with, if you want, look at what he says. He says to all, if anyone would come after me. He's open. Anyone means everyone. Anyone who picks up a Bible and reads Luke chapter 9 and starts in verse 23. That anyone is everyone. That anyone is you. If you want to follow Jesus, Jesus is now going to invite you into understanding what the curriculum is. And he, makes, he uses a word here that isn't necessarily would. I mean, that's a good translation of the word, but it's better translated whoever wants to. So that Jesus recognizes that all of what he is doing is causing massive followership. All of the numbers of his followers on, you know, TikTok and Twitter and Instagram are just skyrocketing. But he's about to make a bad PR move here. He's about to lose some followers, but he acknowledges and he doesn't even rebuke people in this statement for why they're following him. He says, if you want to come, you come. Doesn't matter who you are. You want to be involved? You want to follow me? Come on. But now he's going to lay out the requirements. What does it mean for us to follow Jesus? If anyone would come after me, come after is used all throughout Luke as a, as a kind of a euphemism for discipleship. A euphemism for what it means to be in personal, dedicated relationship with Jesus. So, we need to ask the question, are you, would you say today, I'm following Jesus? I'm following after Jesus. I'm in the path that Jesus is taking. If that's the case, here's how your life should look. So let's define it for us. Let's have Jesus define it for us so that we know what following Jesus means and what coming after me means to Jesus. Number one, you've got three and they all come a string of verbs. They're all connected. The third is defined by the first two, restricted by the first two. But here's the first one. If anyone would come after me, number one, let him deny himself. Simply put, this word means to reject, to disavow. It's used of John when John refers to, when John is confronted with the question, are you the Christ? 
And it says that he strongly denied it. He disavowed. And John said, no, I'm absolutely not the Christ. It's used of Peter with Peter's three denials who essentially say, I do not know the man over and over again. It's a strong term. It's the most significant term that Luke could use and that Jesus could use here to describe wanting absolutely nothing to do with. Now, when you hear deny yourself, you might think Lent. You might think no bacon for 40 days. I'm denying myself. Well, you're denying yourself saturated fats. That's certainly true. You may think Amish, and you go, we're doing buttons, no zippers, because we're denying ourselves. I'm only going into farming. I'm not using electricity. I'm denying myself. You may think asceticism, which is similarly that idea of continuing to deny myself as many things as possible, to shrink my world to make sure as I'm as least dependent on things of this life as possible. But that's not what Jesus says. It's not denying yourself things. It's denying yourself. But what does denying myself mean? It essentially means to renounce yourself as the sole arbiter, decision maker, and authority over your life. Jesus said, here's requirement number one. You are not the boss. When I'm my big girls, I have big girls who are about to be 13 this month, and they're twins, and they were coming up on their fourth or fifth birthday. And when you're a parent, you just, you say stuff, and you don't really know whether or not it's going to get you into trouble. And... Uh, you try to, you know, reel back the things that you say, and it doesn't work real good, but we were getting ready for birthdays, and I thought to myself, I was just kind of off the cuff thinking about how can we celebrate my little girl's birthdays? And I said, here's what, here's, we use a term in our house when our kids are little about kind of cementing the idea of authority. Mom and dad are your authority. God is our authority. And we use kind of a, a way to say that. And we go, mom and dad are the boss. God's the boss of mom and dad. We are the boss of you. You are not the boss. Mom and dad are the boss. So we're trying to get this incredibly profound theological concept into the lives of our four-year-olds. And I, as we were getting ready for the birthday, thought to myself, boy, it'd be fun because I was an idiot of of letting the little girls kind of choose how their birthday was going to go. And I made the mistake of saying that, how about, baby girl, how about for your birthday, you can be the boss. And the, it was like the record scratch, and the music stopped, and the whole house got quiet. And Molly looked at me with eyes and goes, I'm the boss? <laughs> and I thought to myself, if I could unring that bell, I would. But there's something for Jesus and the idea of discipleship that's incredibly profound. It begins with how we view ourselves. It begins with whether or not we believe that we have the authority over our life. Think about how many things that you do in your life merely because you want to. You can't, I mean, you just spend five minutes thinking about that and you go, I can't think of, I mean, maybe if you've got little kids that'll die if you don't feed them, you know, you, you renounce yourself for 20 minutes to feed them. But like, in general, we all have a way of not denying ourselves as the sole arbiter and decision maker and authority in our life, but affirming the fact that I am in charge. I am the boss. I have the authority to make decisions for what is best for me. 
And when Jesus starts with it, this is foundation on shattering in what Jesus says. He says, deny yourself. One commentator put it like this. As Peter denied Jesus saying, I know not the man, so you must say this to yourself, I disown you completely. I mean, and isn't this how salvation happens? Don't we believe, Christians, that we cannot save ourselves? Don't we believe that we don't measure up to the standard of holiness that God requires? Don't we believe that we need somebody on the outside to reach in and to save us from the mess that we have created? That we need someone wiser, stronger, better, holier, more righteous than we are to fix this thing? It's humiliating to receive the gospel. Because you have to deny yourself as the one who is strong, as the one who is righteous, as the one who has the ability, as the one who is affirmed in their day to day to day as having the authority and the wisdom. And you have to say, I reject it. I have no hope unless someone saves me, unless someone enters in, unless someone reaches down, unless someone redeems and rescues me. I deny my ability to save myself and I throw myself on Christ. That's where it starts. So Jesus says, reject the temptation to believe that your life is meant to be one of self-fulfillment. Commit treason against yourself. That's number one. Number two, look at what Luke says. Take up his cross daily. This is the first mention of the cross in the book of Luke. We don't understand really what the disciples knew of Jesus and what he would uh, go through in going to the cross. In fact, when we talk about Jesus, we talk about the fact that the cross is very central to the revelation of who he is. But it's not clear at this point that the disciples even know that. So Jesus uses a term that has nothing to do with the atonement, has everything to do with discipleship, and Jesus hasn't even been crucified yet. So for Jesus to share this term, to say, one, deny yourself, reject yourself as the authority over your life, and number two, to take up your cross, he enters into a first century reality that every disciple would be aware of as they were under the authority of Rome. The cross was the singular, most horrendous, most embarrassing and humiliating execution possible. It was perfected by the Romans. They were great at it. And for Jesus to use it in the context of discipleship had to be just obliterate their categories. Think of what the disciples had been through up to this point. We've cast out demons. We've healed diseases. We've come back and rejoiced in the fact that Jesus is who he says he is. We believe he's the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of Man, the glorious one. Jesus introduces the concept of suffering. And then he brings up the fact that if you want to follow me, you've got to take up your cross daily. To take up your cross was to take the cross beam and to put it on your shoulders and to walk through the city to the place of execution surrounded by Roman soldiers. To receive the reproach of the state, the humiliation among your peers, and the absolute certainty that with every step you come closer and closer and closer to the certain reality of your death. And Jesus uses it to create a picture of discipleship. In fact, Paul even uses this over in the book of Galatians. 
Galatians 6, he says this, he says, Far be it for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. See, crucifixion is a severing of relationship, right? If Rome turns on you and says you're about to be crucified, what they are saying essentially is that you are a, tre a treasonous criminal against the authority of Rome. And we are going to have no more of that, thank you very much. We're going to crucify you and silence you. In a sense, your relationship with Rome has been broken. But when Paul uses it this way, he uses it in the reverse as well. To say that I no longer will submit to the rules and regulations of the powers of this day. The world is crucified to me and I to the world. There's separation. There's hatred. There's renouncing. There's a refusal to follow. This relationship is now broken. So not only am I renouncing myself as the highest authority in my life, but I am also renouncing everything and anything in this world that claims to have authority over me as well. And I'm severing and breaking that relationship. No matter what it costs me, every single day. Why daily? I had a seminary professor said, you know what the problem? Uh, you know, um, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Uh, consider yourself um, something, something real good. Living sacrifice, right? He talked about living sacrifice in Romans 12, 1 and 2. And he said, you know what the problem with the living sacrifice is? The problem with the living sacrifice is it doesn't stay on the altar because it keeps trying to crawl off the altar. It doesn't want to die. And what Jesus is saying here about picking up your cross daily is that every single day you've got to remind yourself of your relationship to this world and break it once again and renounce it once again. Do you find that you are struggle with temptation to build your life in the world here every single day? Thank you, Jared. The only person in this room who recognizes the temptation of this world. Amen? Right? I feel that. Every single day I feel like temptation crawls onto my soul and tries to fight for the fact that my life is here, my future is here. And I have to break that by taking up the cross and reminding myself, no, I'm following Christ. So number one, deny yourself. Number two, take up your cross. And the one that we really understand here and follow me helps us understand that the fact and the certainty of Christ's crucifixion starts to flow downstream to us. So that following Christ means renouncing myself all the time. Yes, even daily. Taking up my cross. Yes, even daily. And that restricts the definition of following Christ. How do I know you're following Christ? Are you rejecting the authority and the desires of your life that seek to make war against your soul? Number two, are you crucifying over and over and over again your tendency to build your life and your affection and tie it to this world? That's how Jesus says discipleship ought to look. Now, Jesus is way, way smarter than me. And Jesus is so, so wise because he recognizes that just to give those commands doesn't help us. We need to understand what does that look like and what does that mean. Now, if you look from 923 into 24, 5, 6, and 7, do you see how the repeated word F-O-R is repeated in the next three verses? Do you see that in your Bible? So if you see that, circle each of those so that you can understand that. And see, here are three statements that Jesus is going to use to expand and help us understand what it means to deny ourselves, take up our cross daily, and follow him. Because they're all explanatory of what Jesus just said here. You okay so far? Are you convicted yet? Okay, good. That's the goal. Let's look at the first one. 
Here are the first of the three explanatory statements about how uh, Jesus is going to help us understand what is happening in discipleship. Verse 24, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Now this is a kind of a tricky verse because Jesus uses multiple terms in multiple ways, right? So if discipleship is renouncing myself, I am not the sole authority over my life. I am not the sole decision maker. I don't have the last word in my life. And number two, taking up my cross daily, crucifying myself to the world and the world to me, and following Christ, Jesus is going to talk about the person who's attempting to do that is going to face challenges. Do you face challenges dying? Try holding your breath for 30 seconds. And then now, tell me what's most important to you. Have you found that one of the most important things to you is living? Yes? Okay. I thought the breathing illustration would really hit. Maybe not. That's fine. Maybe you breathe once a week and that's the way that you do it. For whoever would save his life. Now, here's what I want you to see. We started this passage in 23 with the word would, right? W-O-U-L-D. And it means to want or to desire. Jesus repeats the word here in verse 24. For whoever would, whoever wants to, whoever has a desire, whoever has an intention, which tells us that Jesus understands our hearts well enough to know that discipleship happens in the crucible of our desires, in the forge of our hearts, in the things that we want and desire and have ambitions for, the things that we long for. He recognizes that at that level of our lives and of our hearts is where, is precisely where discipleship happens. Because one of the most foundational things about you and me is the fact that we like living and not dying. You want to go and take a poll of the people in Marion Square today? Ask them how many of them would prefer living over dying. I'm pretty sure it's close to 100. So Jesus recognizes whoever has a desire to save their life ultimately will lose it. Well, what does that mean? If Jesus' picture of discipleship is self-denial, taking up my cross, and following him, he recognizes there are other approaches to life. He recognizes that people think about life differently than following Jesus. In fact, people do this all the time. I think we all do this all the time, is that we all plan for self-preservation. Anyone planning a job loss this week? Anyone planning to lose a significant relationship? Anyone planning to have a business loss that costs you thousands of dollars? Nobody is planning. We're all planning for self-preservation and success. We're planning to get the degree, get the guy, get the girl, get the house, get the car, get the fill in the blank. And Jesus says if your goal in life is self-preservation, Ultimately, what will happen is that you will lose your very life. If the whole goal of your life is making sure you don't die, you will lose your life. Because you will build your life around what makes life best here. 
What allows me the most comfort, success, security here? And he says, if that's the arc of your life, you will get to the end and you will lose your life. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Well, Jesus just gave us this picture of renouncing myself, taking up my cross, following Christ. We know that suffering is coming for Christ. And now we're taken back and transported back to the consequences of following Jesus in Luke chapter 6. We're reminded of the fact that Jesus believes that he should be the most central reality to someone's life. If you lose your life, if you lose comfort, if you lose security in this life, if you lose certainty, if you lose future, if you lose money, if you lose your hopes, if you lose your dreams, if you lose your ambitions, but it's because you're following Christ, you'll find your life. Now, is this... Let, hold on, just, just imagine you're discipling somebody who just came to the knowledge of Jesus and he can save, save them from their sins. Is this in your curriculum? Are you, I mean, because this is where Jesus starts this at the beginning, doesn't he? His discipleship is really, it's really hard to get discipled by Jesus, isn't it? To recognize that what he is talking about, to recognize what he's calling you to, to recognize the possibility of complete and total loss in this life with the prospect of, of keeping my life. With the opportunity of saving my life. I mean, we saw this. Remember when we went through Ecclesiastes and we looked, looked at the story of Solomon? And it didn't matter what Solomon did. Solomon kept like, he was like this grumpy old man that was like, man, you built this great garden. He's like, vanity of vanities, though. What about all the arts and leisure you enjoyed? Vanity of vanities. <laughs> He's like, well, didn't, what about all the women? Yeah, and the money, uh-huh, and the gardens, whatever. Because Solomon recognized none of this will, it will last. It's not life. There's no life there. There's no hope here. It doesn't give me certainty. It doesn't preserve and save my life. But lose your life. Take up your cross. Renounce yourself. Follow me. If you put your life in my hands and embrace following me, you will actually find life. So there's our first. Does, does Jesus understand our hearts pretty good? He understands that we have a way of trying to preserve and make sure our life is good. To make sure our life and our security and our hope and our comfort and our peace are bound to this life. And he says, open your hands, put your life in my hands and you will find life. Let me direct your life. Renounce your connection and your dependence on this world for comfort, safety, security, and life. Give it to me and you will find it. Now, that's his first explanation. Now, when we think about preservation, I'm sure in your mind, and this was in my mind as well as I read this passage, I thought, this is really a conversation about values, isn't it? It's really a conversation about the things that we find most important. And even as I had that thought, I had to read the next verse and was like, man, Jesus got me again. He understood me better than I understood me. So let's look at the next explanatory statement. Verse 25. For 
And Jesus introduces terms that don't have to do with life and death so much, but he introduces us to terms that, that are commercial terms. They're business terms. 25, for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? So Jesus pulls out the ledger. He pulls out the scales and he said, imagine everything on this side that you lust for, that you desire for, that your ambitions are for. Every future reality that is currently ordering the decisions you make today. Imagine your, your hopes and dreams, your ambitions, your, your desires, the, everything possible that you could have and you could make something on your life and, and, it, and it's on this side. And then on this side, put your soul. And Jesus says the soul and the whole world don't equal out. They don't even. He said the soul is worth more. And I read that and I go, oh man. Do I have things that I really believe will profit me in this world? Do I have things that I, that I run after and look to and pay attention to? Maybe better to say it like this, that do I have things in my life that if I don't have them, my life would feel worthless? That my life would feel unprofitable? Like I have wasted my time and energy and effort if I don't have this thing. So let me, well, let's do some group counseling. You like group counseling? Me too, I love it. I do it every week. Here's group counseling. If you were to scrape out that whole world in your Bible and just put a blank, I want you to consider for yourself right now in, the, in this chair, in this conversation right now, what is your whole world right now? If you were to say, if I don't have that, my life feels worthless. And Jesus would say back to you, what good is it if you have the whole world, yet lose your very soul to get it? Let me ask another question. Do you have people in your life that know you well enough to say things like, Steve, I think you're making this your whole world. Steve, I think you're making decisions about the things that you want and the direction of your life that is shrinking your soul to the size of the whole world in your life. Are you aware of what those things are in your life? Are you aware of the just implicit decisions that you make about pursuing things that are of great value and profit in your life? Do you understand what those are? Are you aware of the tendency they have to put hooks in your soul and to define your life about what you can achieve and obtain here? See, we can talk about discipleship all day long, but if discipleship doesn't get to here, doesn't get to the point to where you're willing to confess, if I don't have the affection of that woman, my life has shrunk and I am worthless. If I don't have the affirmation in my career, my life has shrunk and it is worthless. If I am disrespected and not respected for the person that I think that I am, my life shrinks and it's worthless.
See, Jesus knows us. He understands that we have a tendency to to base our life, if not on self-preservation, on accumulation. On amassing as much security, respect, affirmation, money, objects. And Jesus says it doesn't matter if you have it all. It doesn't matter if you have it all. You could have it all. And you would still lose your soul. So we've had two. Our tendency to self-preservation. Our temptation here toward accumulation. And gaining things in this life that we think give us security, comfort, peace, and safety. Well, there's one more. Because... We need to be more encouraged. There's one more that I think really is the, is the nail in the coffin for this conversation. Because Jesus keeps peeling back the layers. Yeah, you like to live, take up your cross. You like to obtain stuff, it's not going to satisfy you. But number three, he gets to the heart really of who we all are. All of us have a driving, pulsing heart that attributes worth. No matter who you are, no matter how introverted or extroverted you are, one of the things I know about you is that your heart is constantly affirming and worshiping. It's constantly making this decision. This is unworthy of my worship time and attention. This is worthy of my time, worship, and attention. You're all doing that. I'm doing that all the time. I'm doing that even as I stand up here. And the driving, pulsing heart of those who would follow Jesus is exposed in this final verse that Jesus gives us here. And this is the only verse in the context here uh, that has eternity in mind. If you notice how the first two sort of limit uh, themselves to our own life, they limit, well, take up your cross because one day you'll die. So maybe that's an 80 years time stamp. And he says, what worth, what good would it be if you get the whole world, yet lose your soul. Another 80 years. What happens if you make it all? Make all the money. Have all the land. Get all the cars. Get all the females. Get all the males. Get all the fill in the blank. You still, we still got it for 80 years. This is the one that Jesus steps outside of time and causes us to consider the implications of discipleship for eternity. Verse 26. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words. What does it mean in context to be ashamed of Jesus' words? To ignore what Jesus says about eternity? To ignore what Jesus says about renouncing yourself as the sole authority over your life? To ignore what Jesus says about taking up your cross daily? Being ashamed of Jesus and his word is kind of consistently used here in this idea. It's our tendency to ascribe worth or shame, glory and honor or shame to what Jesus has to say. And you'll notice that Jesus puts his person and his word right together. Isn't that interesting? Because you cannot divorce Jesus and his word. You can't go, I love Jesus, but the things that he says, eh. Right? Jesus puts them together. He says, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words, 
in context by refusing to do what I say, refusing to renounce themselves, refusing to take up their cross, refusing to come after me, and instead building their life on what they can accumulate, building their life on what makes their life easy here, building their life on the things that they can obtain. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Now, if, if you were with us last week, you remember the Son of Man was an incredibly important term last week, right? Because Jesus used it to refer to himself. And he used it to refer to something that is spoken in Daniel chapter 7 about the glorious reality of the coming Son of Man. And what Jesus says that the Son of Man last week was going to suffer, be rejected, be killed, and be raised three days later. And he introduced the Son of Man term and filled it with the reality of his coming resurrection. I'm sorry, his coming rejection and resurrection. But here he doesn't do that. Here he goes, no, 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 no. I am the Son of Man. And there's coming a day when I will return. And there's coming a day when I will receive the right to rule and to judge from my heavenly father. There's coming a time when the sky will roll back like a scroll. There's coming a time when I will return. There's coming a time when you will see me in my glory with my father and the holy angels. And how you have treated me and my word over the course of your life will determine how I treat you in that day when I am revealed for who I am. So why would we spend so much time as a church investing in reading, studying, meditating, and believing the words that Jesus has left here for us in the Word? Why would we do that? Because we believe at one time and at one point I will stand before the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, before the Son of God who died for me, And he will ask, how did you respond to my word? What did you do with what I said? It reveals that sobering reality in Matthew chapter 7 where many on that day will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we cast out demons in your name? And what Jesus will say is, depart from me, I never knew you. See, you could stand up this morning and go, Steve, I don't believe any of this garbage. I don't believe any of this Bible stuff. I'm out of here. And you might not experience really any visible consequences for that statement. When we close our Bibles and reject what God says and refuse to obey what he says, we don't get immediately struck by lightning, do we? But there's coming a time when Jesus will be revealed for who he is. And on that day, the quality of our discipleship is going to be revealed. And the quality of our discipleship as being people of the book who long to know and hear and understand his word. To be people who long to hear his voice speak into and over our lives will be revealed on that day. Because your discipleship is headed somewhere. Your discipleship is not just momentary solutions to mild, spiritually difficult problems. Your discipleship is headed towards standing before the risen, redeemed, and glorious Christ who will ask you, were you ashamed of me? Mark puts it like this, for those who are ashamed of my words in a sinful and adulterous generation, what will you stand for? 
Will you embrace what Jesus says about who he is and what it means to be a disciple of his to go, I will not move from the fact that Jesus is my Lord. Jesus is my God. What he says goes. End of discussion. Period. Because to be ashamed of his words is simultaneously to affirm and to honor somebody else's word. It's to honor the word of what the world says. It's to honor the world of what your boss says. It's to honor the, the word of other people and other voices in your life. So when Jesus says, follow me and you seek to preserve your life, you'll lose it. This is what he's talking about. He's talking about his word giving life. See, up to this point, our exploration of Jesus' titles have been really nothing more than identity. And here Jesus says, I'm not John the Baptist. I am not Elijah. I am not one of the prophets. I am the one who, if you reject my word, you will experience an eternal destiny apart from God. Those are the stakes of discipleship. He finished, Luke finishes here in verse 27. He says this, I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And I, I read that. This is one of those verses you come to when you're studying. and You go, there's how many interpretations of this verse? Seven? Oof, okay. Uh, essentially, commentators come out with, with saying either the revelation of the kingdom of God did not happen and Jesus was wrong. So you take that one off. Uh, but this text happens in the context of uh, what will come in all three Gospels, what will come next, which is the transfiguration. We'll look at that next week, but in Matthew and Mark and Luke, everything that, every part of this story is followed up by the transfiguration. And many think that what Jesus is saying is that the revelation of the kingdom of God that comes in his person is seen now in this next uh, biblical scene in the next part of Luke. And or the disciples will see the kingdom of God going forth as they receive the power of the Spirit in the beginning of Acts and what Luke will record for us there. And as the gospel of the kingdom goes forth in the preaching and teaching of these disciples who are faithful to Christ's word unto death. But apart from that, I want to apply this for us because I... You know, I, this text, I think, has just been heavy on my heart for us as a church in general. You know, you read what Jesus says here, and there's a lot of hard stuff in this, isn't there? For Jesus to say, renounce your life, commit treason against yourself. Renounce yourself as, as the singular highest authority in your life. I feel that tension because I fundamentally, guys, I fundamentally believe that I know what's best for me. Have you found that? Don't you believe that you know what's best for you? That your perspective on life, if everybody else would have your perspective on life, we would bring in the kingdom. <laughs> if everybody else drove like you drove, if everybody understood the situation like you understood the situation. Don't you believe that? I mean, to say that out loud is arrogant, so we're not going to say it. We'll just kind of <laughs> agree that it's true. Right? We, all, we all have that tendency to go like, God, the thing that you're struggling with right now, you wouldn't put yourself through that because you're far wiser than the sovereign Lord of the universe. And I think that this text exposes for us that in our discipleship that 
we walk with Christ and sometimes it's painful. Crucifixion is not pleasant. You can quote me on that. Put that on our social media this week. And we know that all of these disciples will lose their life, but like, when we sever our commitment to ourself and to our desire for preserving our life and to sever our commitment to life in this world and, and making the sole ambition of our life the pursuit of what we can accumulate and obtain, I just want to end with something that I, I think is helpful for us to meditate on. It's from Philippians chapter 3. It just, it came to mind this week and, you know, God did not, Paul was not a slouch. I mean, if Paul was in business, he would have made his million before 25. If Paul was in the sciences, he would have had his Nobel Prize. If Paul was an athlete, he would have had the championships. And when I look at Paul's life and I look at how zealous he was and I look at how dedicated he was and I look at how committed he was essentially to do the opposite of what Jesus says here, I have to ask the question, what changed his life? Because I read this and I go, oh God, like, change my life. Where in the world am I going to get the strength to obey what Jesus says here? Without feeling like a constant failure in this process of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Because you can preach this and go, you know what your problem is? You don't want it bad enough. Get out there and want it more. Quit liking stuff. And quit loving you. All right, love me less. Get less stuff. Take a cross. But there's something that so revolutionarily changed Paul's life. It so obliterated these categories of life in this world. And it shows up in Philippians chapter 3. He says this. I myself, Philippians 3, 4, I have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day. I was, were you, anybody else obeying at day 8? Paul says we were obedient at day 8. And it didn't stop from there. Next, I was of the people of Israel. I was a part of the covenant people of God chosen from Abraham forward. I was one of the 12 tribes in the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was the best of the best. I had the best 40 times. I could bench press the most. I was the Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law of Pharisee, top of my game. As to zeal, how about his emotional life? I wanted it bad. I was even a persecutor of the church. I took on the people who came door to door. I had no problem defending the truth of the Old Testament scriptures. As to righteousness under the law, you couldn't touch me. I was blameless. Verse 7. But whatever gain I had, isn't it interesting that Paul uses economic terms here, doesn't he? He uses commerce terms again, doesn't he? Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. Same thing that Jesus just talked about. For the sake of Christ. Verse 8, indeed I count everything as a loss. I count everything as a loss. Well, why? What, 
What changed the balances in Paul's way of understanding life? In the way that he understood the values of this life? What did it for Paul? What freed him from this passionate pursuit of his own glory and his own obtaining and his own possessions and his own worship? I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. See, Paul was like Solomon in this particular way, is that he had it all. But what happened in Saul's life was that he didn't get to the end and say vanity of vanities. He said there's something far more compelling in my life than anything else. There's something of such greater worth in my life than anything else this world has to offer. And it's a relationship with Jesus Christ. According to surpassing worth, far abundant worth, I count all things as loss because of surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. See, the only way that you're going to get into the heart of discipleship and begin to walk with Christ in this way is that if you see him as valuable. See, the disciples hear this word of take up your cross and they don't know the fact that Jesus is about to do it on their behalf because they've never seen it before. So the words that Christ gives to them are challenging. The words that Christ gives them are exposing. But you have to think that on the other side of his rejection and his own crucifixion, they began to understand that he was the most significant reality in their life. That he began to take up in their life and heart the place of absolute preeminence. And when Paul understood that, his life changed. See, his whole life of discipleship began to be about knowing Christ. Not going up and down and good days, bad days, all that. It became an ambition that in every season, in every difficulty, in every time I had to take up my cross, and every time I had to renounce myself, it was a testimony of the fact that I am pursuing Christ. I'm making him the most significant spiritual reality of my entire life, and there's nothing else worth pursuing but him. See, that's my, that's my, that's my goal for me. I fail and I falter at that and I put other things in place, but I, I have to continually renounce and fight for the fact that there's something worth giving my life for and laying my life down and putting it in his hands and saying, it, God, in you, Jesus, in you alone can I find life because there's no life anywhere else. So when Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me, it's an invitation to the greatest, deepest relationship that will last into eternity. Because to hear, guys, to hear when my life is done and I stand before him and for him to go, I am not ashamed of you, is the greatest hope of the Christian's life. Amen? And that's our desire as a church for you. That your discipleship would look like Jesus says discipleship ought to look like. So Father, we confess the challenge of a passage like this. And we reject the many ways in which we
try to find life. We renounce, Father, collectively our, our personal ambition to make ourselves the center of our universe. And Father, with the strength that you provide, we put our lives in your hands. With the strength that you provide, we take up the cross. With the strength that you provide, we follow you. We depend on you. And we recognize that even in this room, our, our hearts are ambitious for things that they ought not be ambitious for. They're valuing things that they ought not value. But would the worship of Jesus Christ, him crucified for sinners and raised from the dead, be the pulsing heart of our relationship with you? Even this week, would we confess with Paul of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord? Father, that's our ambition and our desire. Would you do that in us and honor your word in that way? In Christ's name, amen.